Welcome to the Fully Disclosed Podcast. I'm Kim Harrison. Like you, my roles are multifaceted. Wife, mom, granny, Bible teacher, and writer. But I'm convinced the best thing of all is simply belonging to Jesus, and the greatest thrills are discovering Him at every turn. After all, He promises that those who ask receive, they that seek find, and to those who knock the door will be opened. Everything fully disclosed. For in Him we have everything God is and everything man is intended to be. Andy and I spent last Thanksgiving at my niece's house in Norman. She and her husband had built a new home, and she was a gracious hostess, inviting the whole family for the day's feast and events. Her mom is my sister, and we spent much of the day with the grandkids, all who are preschool age, in the little playroom adjacent to her toddler grandson's room. It was filled with all kinds of toys to keep the little ones entertained for hours. One toy was very familiar, and I took it into the kitchen where my niece was overseeing the last of the table prep just before we all gathered together for Thanksgiving dinner. It's Ellie, I said, gesturing to my niece with the little stuffed elephant in my hand. She smiled and nodded with the knowing look. Ellie had been her childhood companion and went everywhere with her as a little girl as far as I can remember, and probably as long as she can remember too. We reminisced about Ellie for a minute or two, and she told me that the little elephant had even accompanied her to college. And here was Ellie in the nursery of her firstborn son. Ellie didn't have all of the bells and lights like those of the other toys in her son's playroom. In fact, she seemed rather out of place in the middle of all things fresh and new. Ellie was not the plump little elephant I remember when my niece first started carrying her around everywhere. She was longish and thin, sort of stretched, as evidence that she had spent many a night clutched, even squeezed within my niece's arms as she slept. If Ellie could talk, she could probably recount all the big events of my niece's life as she was her constant companion and confidant through the many seasons of her childhood, and even into young adulthood. When I was reminiscing with my niece about Ellie, it reminded me of the children's story The Velveteen Rabbit, which begins with this little stuffed bunny as a stocking gift for a little boy. The rabbit is described as fat and bunchy with a brown and white velveteen coat, thread whiskers, and pink satin-lined ears. According to the story, he was the best of all the stocking gifts, and the little boy loved him. For two hours. Until other relatives came and brought more presents, and the velveteen rabbit ends up forgotten. Of course, we see the story from the rabbit's perspective, and it isn't long after finding his place on a shelf in the nursery that he develops a sort of inferiority complex. Other, more modern-type toys in the nursery with mechanical moving parts look down on him and all the other toys because they pretend like they are real. Others also elevate themselves for various reasons in the pecking order of toy rank. And of course, in nursery life, if you want to feel superior, you must make others feel inferior. And so, guess who becomes the target? The little bunny who is filled with sawdust is considered rather out of date by all the other toys. So you get the picture. The little velveteen rabbit comes to view himself the way the other toys see him, as second rate and beneath everyone else. He finds kindness and friendship in the skin horse, the toy who has lived in the nursery longer than anyone else. In fact, he is so old that his brown coat is bald in patches, and his tail is thin from losing many of his hairs through the years. But the self-importance of the other toys don't face him, despite his ragged appearance. Age had given him wisdom, and he had watched many mechanical toys parade through the nursery, only to see them come and go despite their boast and swagger. And the skin horse knew something of nursery magic that the mechanical toys would never know or experience. And he confides it to the velveteen rabbit. 
Though other toys in the nursery imagined themselves as real, pretended to be real, the skin horse had actually become real. The boy's uncle had made him so. He tells the Velveteen Rabbit that the way a nursery toy becomes real happens when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just as a plaything, but really loves you. The skin horse admits that sometimes being loved in such a way is painful, but at the same time, when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. And once you are real, you cannot become unreal. Well, the story advances as the Velveteen Rabbit is randomly grabbed by Nana one night and given to the little boy as he is going to bed and has misplaced the little china dog that he usually sleeps with. This is the beginning of many adventures with the little boy and the process of the Velveteen Rabbit becoming real. The little bunny becomes the boy's playmate, indoors and outdoors, his confidant, his companion, holding him in both hands next to his chin as he sleeps every night. Many days and weeks pass, and the Velveteen Rabbit is so happy, he doesn't notice that his fur is starting to rub off, and he is becoming shabbier and shabbier, and his pink nose is no longer pink because he has been kissed so many times by the little boy. He loves his bunny so much that one day the little boy declares to his Nana that the bunny is not a toy. He is real. Their adventures continue together, and the bunny is so happy until the boy gets sick with scarlet fever. The Velveteen Rabbit remains under the bed covers and next to the little boy as the fever burns through his body. Those were long days and long nights, but the bunny was determined to remain close to the boy because he knew he needed him. Well, the boy recovers, but the doctors prescribed that the room be disinfected and the books and toys the boy played with in the bed be burned. Nana eyes the bunny as a mass of scarlet fever germs and sets him aside to be destroyed the next day. That night, he manages to wriggle himself out of the sack of things set outside to be burned. He is so sad, thinking, what's the use of becoming real if it all just ends up like this? Miserable and heartbroken, a real tear trickles down his shabby velvet nose and falls to the ground, where a mysterious flower grows right before his eyes with a blossom that opens, and out of it steps a fairy who takes the bunny into her arms, kisses him, works her nursery magic, and turns him into a real bunny. Not just real in the eyes of a little boy, but real among all the living rabbits. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12 says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Of course, you could say the gospel, in a way, is about taking shabby things and making them new. But in truth, it's really so much better than that. And you could say that it's a story about becoming real, but it's really about Jesus taking a dead thing and bringing it to life. And this is where the story begins for us, of a dead soul being brought to life. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Sin has marred each of us into a big heap of shabby nothingness. And without someone to intervene, we remain lost, worthless, separated from God, and without hope. For the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So from the father's perspective, there's no pecking order. There are no good deeds that place you ahead of me and me ahead of someone else and so on. We are all on equal footing in sin before God, lost and abandoned. We need someone to come in from the outside and work a miracle. Not the miracle of nursery magic, of course, but the true miracle of redemption. One verse captures this miracle perhaps better than any single verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, And he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So simply put, this is the miracle of salvation, of atonement. Jesus takes the blame for all of your sin and gives you the credit for all of his righteousness. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gift of salvation is an exchange. Jesus exchanges our shabbiness, that is, our sin, for his perfection, his righteousness, so that everything that is true about Jesus in all of his perfection becomes true of us. Because 1 John 3, 5 says, And we know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. And now, because of his work on the cross, all who will believe are declared righteous. Remember in the story how the little boy came to love the Velveteen Rabbit so much that he declared to Nana that the bunny was real? Jesus, because of his love for us, through his atonement on the cross, declares that we are now righteous, because not only has he taken away our sin, but he has imparted to us his righteousness. In Christ, we literally stand blameless before God. Of course, in the story of the Velveteen Rabbit, the bunny didn't become real in the moment the boy declared him so. But you and I can have confidence that when Jesus declares us righteous, we are righteous in him and righteous indeed. There is nothing we can add to it through good works. It is a free gift, a new life, an exchanged life, an eternal life. And though the story of the Velveteen Rabbit ends with the bunny becoming real, Our story in Christ has only begun because of this exchanged life. And oh, what an adventure the Lord has for us. For now we who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what the father says to the older son in the parable of the prodigal is true of us. You are always with me and all that I have is yours. We are his constant companion and he is ours. And he has so much to reveal to us and so many things for us to experience in him. So just as the bunny was carried along through all the adventures the little boy experienced, let us imagine ourselves in our Lord's arms as he carries us from vista to vista, revealing the panorama and wonder of his love for us. Ephesians three seventeen through 19 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. In the middle of his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul is moved to include this beautiful prayer on behalf of them, and he prays specifically that they would be rooted and grounded in love, God's love, So we find God's love as the soil in which the roots of our lives are to go down deep. We see a lot of storms in Oklahoma. We see wind practically every day, and it's interesting to watch the reaction of trees to the wind, the tops of their branches swaying back and forth as the wind intensifies. A few branches may get caught up in it and break away, but most seem to take it in stride because they are attached to a tree whose roots go way down deep into the soil beneath them. 
Likewise, this is the idea Paul has when praying that his readers be rooted and grounded in the love of God. It won't stop the storms from coming, but we take them in stride because our root systems go way down deep into the soil of his love. Paul describes these trials and storms in a question he asks in Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Even when trials become unbearable and we are tempted to walk away, the soil of his love holds us fast and we aren't going anywhere. Job 13.15 says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. The soil of his love holds fast the root system of our lives and makes it impossible for us to be taken away. And we are as a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So now as our lives are rooted in the soil of his love, we begin to see the scope of his love, frame by frame. And we acknowledge that as we take in his love on full display, our words are inadequate to capture it. For even a wordsmith like Paul acknowledges that vocabulary is insufficient in capturing the full span of his love. He writes in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. His love is beyond description. So even as we consider each vista, we acknowledge that it is even better than what we perceive or could describe. Listen to the words of David in Psalm 103.11 and 12 as we look first at the breadth of his love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Visualize the stretch of the Savior's arms on the cross in the breadth of God's love as described in this verse, in removing sin as far as the east is from the west. Breadth indicates a measurement side to side. We also see breadth in those outstretched arms from the cross to include a multitude without number in its reach, consisting of people from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, and within those multitudes the concerns of the smallest child to the one most advanced in years. It is a breadth of love, width to width, within the arm span of our crucified Lord. As we remain rooted and grounded in love, we go from the breadth of his love to the next frame in grasping the length of his love. We relate length to duration of time and that old familiar question, how much longer till we get there from the back seat of the car? The length of God's love precedes any date of origin and extends beyond any date of conclusion. Before time began, love was, for God is love. And God exists outside of time, before the beginning of time and after time ends. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. And his love has no beginning and no end. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And so when he comes into your life, he brings not only the breadth of his love, but the length of it too. So eternal life is guaranteed because it is given according to his love and not according to how lovable you are. Others may tire of us, become bored with us, disenchanted with us, And their love may find an end as surely as it found a beginning, but not so with God's love. His love is an eternal love, and its length can only be measured outside the time span of clocks or calendars. Those have no place or relevance in eternity. Time has a beginning and an end. The love of God extends backward before time and forward beyond time. So the length of his love is from eternity to eternity. 
We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. His love is an eternal, enduring love. And if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, eternal life is already your possession. We move from the breadth and length of God's love to the next frame of our exalted position with Him, the height of His love. As we are raised with Him, we ascend the heights with Him. As His children, we are joint heirs with Jesus, that where He is, we also will be. Ephesians 2.6 says that He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In John 14.2 and 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has brought our hearts back from the dead with him and has raised us positionally before the Father. Wherever Jesus is, we are with him. And he is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is our mediator, our eternal intercessor, pleading on our behalf before the Father. And according to John 17, 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. He prays that we may see his glory, the glory we consider now, in the breadth and length and height and the depth of his love. Yes, the depth of his love, a love so deep that it stoops. Jesus emptied himself as a bondservant, was made in the likeness of man, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Suffering the wrath of God being poured out on him on our behalf so that sinners could be redeemed and share in all of the blessings he has promised. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Just as we join him in the experience of the height of his love in being raised with him, we peer into the next frame, the depth of his love. He left heaven for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Just as we join him in the heights of the power of his resurrection, so we join him in the depths of the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. The Velveteen Rabbit felt, experienced, the heat of scarlet fever as it burned through the little boy. I'm sure Ellie knew my niece's deepest wishes and sorrows of a young girl. And in the fellowship of his sufferings, the Lord invites us to become his confidant. Colossians 1.24 is an interesting verse. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, let me tell you what he is not saying. He is not saying that there is anything lacking in what Christ has accomplished through his suffering and death. We do not contribute to our salvation through our sufferings. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient, and there is nothing to add to it. So what does he mean when he says, I do my share on behalf of his body in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Do you remember on the Damascus road when Paul, who was Saul at the time, was blinded by a light and heard the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what's interesting? 
Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? So the Apostle Paul understood that the Lord takes very personally the sufferings of believers and claims them as his own sufferings. And so Paul is saying in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice to take on the sufferings in my body that Jesus would be suffering if he were here in the flesh. In the fellowship of his sufferings, we offer our bodies to suffer on Jesus' behalf what he would be suffering if he were still here in the flesh. Our sufferings allow us to become his confidant. When I suffer, he informs me in a very tiny way what it felt like to suffer on my behalf on the cross. Jesus is our bruised heel. He is the original sufferer. Yes, he is our high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows firsthand what it feels like in our bodies to suffer. He is indeed our confidant in suffering. We pour out our hearts to him. But in suffering, we also become his confidant as he informs us in just a small way of what he suffered on our behalf. Oh, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. F.B. Meyer wrote, There will always be as much horizon before us as behind us. And when we have been gazing on the face of Jesus for millenniums, its beauty will be as fresh and fascinating and fathomless as when we first saw it from the gate of paradise. This is a love not merely to be comprehended, but to also be apprehended. We have the capacity to live supernaturally in the four dimensions of Christ's love, breadth, length, height, depth. He has so much love to pour out. The depths of the oceans and seas could not contain it. Neither does his love find its intended target in the galaxies of the sky. No. Only one object of his creation has he designed to fill with his love. An object created in his image. You and me. And there is so much of his love that when he fills your heart with it, it overflows to the next, and so on. I'm telling you, just as he is infinite, he has an infinite supply of love to pour out. May we allow him to fill us to the brim. To be filled with all the fullness of God extends beyond the extremity of the universe, but it also equips us in a very practical way, that which we face in this life. He overflows into our hands as they serve. He overflows into our minds as we think. He overflows from our lips and through our tongues as we speak to others a word of solace, a word of encouragement to one who is depressed, a word of hope to one who is desperate, a word of salvation to one who is lost, words seasoned as it were with salt, knowing how to respond to each person. He overflows into the tissues of our bodies, making us strong when we are weak. He overflows into our souls, bringing calm and rest when confronted with sudden fear. He overflows in our hearts, bringing kindness and compassion that lifts others out of their despair. He overflows to our feet that we may remain on the narrow path, not turning to the right or to the left, but faithful steps of beautiful feet who bring good news of good things. We love because he first loved us, and as he fills us with his love, we reciprocate by loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never think that the love of God is just some lofty idea, something out there beyond our reach. Uh, it surpasses knowledge, all right, but not beyond the comprehension of the soul. 
The love of God overflows within us in an experiential way, a practical way, filling up the inner man and overflowing through the outer man. What part of your being cannot be filled with him and used by him? One last thing from our passage in Ephesians 3, verse 18 says that we may comprehend with all the saints. This love that is ours in Christ is not to be experienced in isolation. It is at its best when comprehended together with each other within the body of Christ, the church. Just as the wise skin horse helped the velveteen rabbit see beyond the superficial of nursery life to a love that could make him real, so others made wise by years of walking with the Lord can teach us how to sink our roots down deep into the soil of his love. Likewise, those younger are equally useful in his refining work within our souls. Knowing each other better, experiencing life together, contributes to our knowing him better. It is my prayer for sure that the Fully Disclosed podcast contributes in a small way to your comprehension of what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And together we are more assured and convinced than ever before that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.